Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing. This is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Today, I spoke with Scott Lowen, who is the CEO of Candy Digital, which is an NFT platform that has partnerships with some really heavy hitters like Major League Baseball, Netflix, Getty Images, the WWE, and a lot of others. Uh, they also just partnered um, with a firm that has uh, Warner Brothers and Marvel, and so they've got a lot of entertainment uh, aspects to their business um, that they are now getting access to. Uh, before doing that, Scott had a long and distinguished career uh, on Wall Street. He was at Goldman Sachs in uh, the early 90s. Then he went to Fortress, which is a huge investment management fund. Uh, he was there during the financial crisis, and we talked about that, of course, because I can't get enough financial crisis stories. Um, he was also at More Capital, uh, which is a huge uh, alternative investment advisor. Uh, before all that, he went to MIT and got an architecture degree. He has a lifelong um, uh, association and affinity for the arts. Uh, he also uh, was thinking about becoming a nuclear physicist um, before kind of changing his mind and moving more towards architecture and then back into finance. Um, we talked about all of that and about what they're doing at Candy Digital, uh, where they are working on the Palm Network and they uh, are in the midst of the Major League Baseball season and they have um, collectible uh, individual cards and team cards and they're doing things like uh, with, with Major League Baseball that sanctions you know, moments in baseball history that you might want to own as an NFT connected to a blockchain. So uh, Scott's a really smart guy. I uh, love it when I see these, these folks from Wall Street and traditional finance jumping into Web3. I think uh, the whole space is better for it. So with all that being said, let's get to the conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Hey, Scott, how you doing? Thanks so much for being here today. I'm great, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, um, I've uh, been looking forward to talking to you because uh, you've got such a, a fascinating background um, in, in some of the heaviest hitters uh, as they come in finance. And then I love it when when those sorts of folks kind of make the leap into Web3. Um, so, but I thought, first of all, um, I, I was also impressed with uh, your long history uh, with arts patronage and involvement in the art community. And it kind of struck me as I was, I was looking over your resume and stuff. Um, so you're the CEO of Candy Digital, which is a very big um, NFT platform. Um, you guys have partnerships with like Major League Baseball and Netflix and NASCAR, and we're going to get into all that. But it struck me that um, I wondered if you coming into the NFT world kind of came in as an art collector or somebody who had loved art, uh, you know, previously in their life and, and you still do. Was that something that maybe that's obvious to you, but I just wondered if, if you had thought about it like that. And that's maybe why the NFT space appealed to you. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually a really interesting insight. Um, it, it is part of uh, what brought me into the space. And, um, you know, it, it, as you rightly uh, noted, I've been a, fan of the arts, a patron of the arts and, and kind of inspired by the arts for, you know, pretty much my whole life. Um, I actually studied architecture as an undergrad before moving into finance. And so, um, art and design has always been sort of a, uh, a hobby and a, and a passion, not, not necessarily a career. And, um, kind of prior to starting, uh, candy in, in 2020, um, one of the reasons that, um, that we started the company and co-founded it was, learning more about, uh, NFTs, um, you know, kind of post crypto kitties, um, starting to think about what does it mean to own, uh, a, a digital asset, whether that's a, you know, a JPEG image or a video file or, um, you know, some other sort of creative, uh, you know, piece of content, but have unique ownership on chain. And the idea that, uh, artists and creators and IP owners can actually benefit um, not just in the primary sale, but, you know, in ongoing royalties over time was a really powerful concept for me. Um, in 2019, uh, I actually curated the largest global street art exhibition uh, in the world and uh, spent a lot of time, you know, working with artists and, you know, that was very specific uh, to a to a particular project and a, that, a that was the red campaign, we were, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Paint, paint red, save lives. Yeah. Um, but spend a lot of time with those artists, you know, just sort of talking about their own work and their own careers. And, um, it just never seemed fair to me that a young artist, uh, you know, might sell a painting for $10,000 and then, you know, X number of years go by and, you know, that, that painting might sell for a million dollars and the artist never benefited along the way. And so that idea of, um, having that connectivity, uh, and, and that connection back to the work and, and supportive artists was, was actually one of the core things that got me excited about, about NFTs in particular. Yeah, that I, I agree with that entirely. I thought that was an, an amazing, um, advancement for artists, just like you mentioned, then it was kind of disappointing to learn um, maybe a year ago or so that a lot of those royalty payments uh, from selling on pieces wasn't, weren't actually happening. Um, and I, I didn't know this, but I, I learned that, you know, you've got the smart contracts that are controlling the NFT itself. And then you've got a smart contract that's controlling like OpenSea or another marketplace. And a lot of times those aren't synced. So the, the royalty payment uh, feature doesn't, doesn't get implemented. It, am I stating that correctly and, and what are you guys doing about that at candy yeah no it's it's a shame because you know i think at the core of this community are creators and and certainly um you know some of the the key activity has been around um you know artist projects um that have driven a tremendous amount of interest in onboarding etc the industry you know frankly you know, kind of has done an own goal on itself, uh, by not honoring those royalties and, you know, uh, open sea, you know, obviously, which became kind of the biggest marketplace in the space, um, you know, w- was kind of a defender of, of royalties. They, you know, got vampire attacked, uh, by, you know, blur and looks rare and others, uh, where, you know, honoring royalties wasn't part of, of that exchange plan um, as a way to just attract volume. And mm-hmm. I'm sure you saw recently, you know, uh, oh, just in the last week or so, OpenSea now um, put some information out suggesting that they may step away from that as well. And so it, it's a shame because I think at the core of, you know, what the community is, at the core of, you know, this, this sort of benefit for, for creators is this idea of um, having an ongoing stake in the work that they're creating. Um, you know, the way that we are addressing it currently at, at Candy, um, and it, it's kind of a larger conversation about you know, sort of how we've built our platform is that, um, you know, in many ways, because of issues around, you know, how the, how the broader industry works and, and how, the, how the tech is, is or isn't being supported, um, we're a little bit more of a web 2.5 company, I would say. Um, and so our assets, um, you know, live with, in our platform. And so um, when those assets trade, uh, royalties get collected uh, on our on our platform and then go back to the IP owners or the artists, et cetera. Um, we're really interested in moving towards, you know, opening our platform and our assets up to much more decentralization. Uh, but we want to do that in a way that that actually protects uh, protects the creators and protects the IP owners. And so um, I haven't haven't figured ex- exactly the silver bullet on that. But you know, okay. as some of the new contract standards are coming out there, there are ways um, and tools uh, that are that are being developed that'll that'll give us a better better opportunity to do that. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad to hear that you guys are thinking about it um, and and trying to to move in that in that direction. Um, and it's interesting you say Web 2.5 because I noticed you can, you know, you're letting folks pay for, say, like uh, MLB, a Major League Baseball um, collector pack with credit cards. And um, and then you said it lives in your um, in your ecosystem. Is that an effort to kind of make this easier for folks so they don't have to set up a wallet and they don't have to have crypto or, you know, like you're kind of like baby steps here? Yeah, that was a big part of the thesis. Um, so back in 2020, you know, we, and, and this goes back to kind of my, my initial interest in crypto and, you know, how I started to get involved back in, in 2016 and 2017 was, was very much through the lens of uh, finance and thinking about, you know, cryptocurrencies, thinking about payment processing, thinking about sort of disintermediation of of, uh, of some of the financial infrastructure and then moving contracts into smart contracts. Um, 
you know, we started really to see institutional adoption uh, in the in the crypto markets as, as something that felt like it was going to inevitably continue. Um, big asset managers, hedge funds, wealthy individuals starting to own crypto, um, you know, large uh, institutional players starting to build out and test infrastructure. And so our question was really around what were the things that were going to bring everyday people into the space? Um, understanding that, you know, the process of setting up a, a wallet, um, getting, you, you know, uh, writing your seed phrase down or hiding it, the idea that, you know, you could lose millions of dollars potentially of stored value if, you know, if, if your seed phrase was compromised or, uh, or lost, um, wasn't one that, um, you know, had a great UX, right? And that, and that was going to sort of be ready for prime time with most people. Um, and so what we, what we, what we thought about was, you know, what were the things that, that got people excited about products, experience, et cetera, and, and it's, and it's content in many ways, right? It's, whether it's sports, whether it's entertainment, whether it's culture, it's things that people are passionate about that lead them to experiment uh, and find new ways to engage in that information or, or those stories. And so um, that was how ultimately how we ended up leaning into, into sports and entertainment for Candy. And we wanted to do it in a way that uh, was true to the technology, the idea of owning a, a tokenized uh, piece of content that lived on chain and was verifiable and authenticated and, and, and identifiable, um, but do it in a really simple kind of abstracted e-commerce way. And so, um, you know, with your credit card, with an email, um, somebody who doesn't know what an NFT is, you know, uh, hasn't experimented, uh, you know, in crypto, can now own a digital asset, um, start to understand what the benefits of owning, let's say, a digital trading card might be versus owning a, a, a physical trading card and and get, you know, educated and and, uh, and and enter the space. And so that that's really been kind of Candy's thesis along the way is work with these big uh, sports entertainment and, and culture properties, introduce customers, you know, very, very many for the first time uh, into the space and start to build that momentum going forward. Yeah. And unfortunately, I would say I, I don't see much um, improvement on the user experience here yet. You know, like things are still um, very much uh, kind of clunky and, and difficult. And if, you know, like you said, if you lose your seed phrase or you lose your private key or you get it stolen, you know, that's that's tough shit. <laughs> uh, do you see do you see any um, light at the end of that tunnel? You know, I think that there are. Uh, there are some uh, products and companies out there, you know, that are trying to address um, that user experience uh, up front. Um, you know, they're, well, they want to stay true to crypto roots. They want to make sure that the functionality, the Web3 functionality is there, that, you know, not your keys, not your content, uh, you know, ultimately is, is, it, it, is kind of what everything goes back to. Um, but we're not totally there yet, right? We're not, we're not there yet at a, at a way that, that that's fully scalable. I think what we've seen in the last year or so, um, you know, people aren't talking about NFTs as much, right? They talk yeah. about digital collectibles. Um, they talk about loyalty and rewards. And just even changing the nomenclature, changing the, the way that it's presented uh, to consumers, I, I think is a step in the right direction. And so, you know, when we started Candy, you know, frankly, we actually uh, always had this idea that there would be a continuum between physical assets, maybe the fractionalized ownership of physical assets, and then digital assets, whether those were sort of authentication tokens, where those were digital twins, or where they were, you know, digital content that stood alone. And, um, you know, I think we, along with a lot of people, were surprised in the beginning of 2021 uh, on how quickly the NFT, you know, uh, market took off. And at the time, um, you know, I was pretty vocal as uh, along with, you know, some of our founding board members about the fact that, well, it was super exciting and obviously, you know, opening up the world to this idea of, of digital asset ownership was, was, uh, thrilling. Um, so much of that activity was just driven by speculation. And at the end of the day, um, you know, what was really important was creating assets that served a purpose for fans and consumers uh, that, you know, extended beyond just number go up. 
Yeah. And so, you know, what we've seen is the market has now, you know, dramatically reset itself. Speculation will always be a component of this market, like any sort of asset market. Um, but there's a lot more focus on user experience. There's a lot more focus on user value. There's a lot more focus on, you know, sort of that charged word utility. Um, and we think those are all good things. Yeah, it's interesting, too. For people who have been around this space for a while, it, it, it wasn't just that explosion. It was like a few years ago, you mentioned like CryptoKitties. When they came out, there was a lot of derision about CryptoKitties. It's like the people thought it was ridiculous, you know, but it was kind of the first time that that the NFT, um, you know, idea was was sort of popularized and and it showed that you had this digital ownership of, of a digital piece of, of art. Um, and so from that sort of derision and people snickering at it to like just about two years later, you know, people coming out and selling something for $60 million. Um, it was a bit of a whiplash uh, for folks um, like me who, who had been sort of paying attention to that. Um, so I wanted to kind of go back a little bit and, and talk to, about your background. Um, so you mentioned that you first, uh, before you got into finance, you were uh, more of an artist and a designer. Um, you got a degree in architecture from MIT. W was that, were you an arty kid? Was that sort of the direction that you felt like you were going? Uh, or, or was that something, you know, that just came easily to you when you were younger? Yeah, I mean, I was always really interested in the arts. I was kind of like a skateboard punk rock kid uh, when I was in middle school and high school. Um, and where was that? Time, where did you grow up? Uh, Wisconsin. Uh, okay. So in mid, mid, Midwest. Um, and, uh, you know, used to draw on my Converse high tops and notebooks and, uh, you know, was a, always interested in, 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 in artwork and uh, art history of art and design. Um, but I also had a, you know, analytical side to me, math and science, et cetera. So I actually went to MIT to, to be a nuclear physicist. Um, so slightly, slightly different direction. Um, so, but go ahead. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, you might want to set your sights a little higher. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, there's a, this is a, this is a topic for all another podcast, right? But you know, when you, when you get down into the depths of quantum mechanics, uh, you know, art and science actually start to come together, right? Art, science, and religion uh, all end up kind of mixing together when you're talking about the fundamental matter of the universe. And so I guess in, in my own brain, I, I saw a lot of, you know, connections between those things. But ultimately, um, you know, being a physics PhD student and sort of, you know, living in a sub-basement, smashing invisible particles together, uh, well, intellectually interesting, you know, wasn't necessarily how I saw my, my, my life going forward. And so yeah, the idea, not of, a great way to get chicks either. Uh, yeah, there was, there was that too, <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the idea of, um, you know, engineering, uh, that combined, uh, you know, philosophy, art, design, structural, uh, engineering, et cetera, to create structures that, you know, change the way people live, like, all that stuff clicked. And so that, that's how I ended up on the, on the architecture track. Were your parents in the arts or was that like an influence on you? Not at all. Um, you know, but my, my parents, uh, uh, certainly appreciated arts, but that wasn't, uh, you know, what wasn't their, their thing. Uh, my dad was a huge sports fan. Um, you know, sadly, uh, he was a lifelong Cubs fan. Uh, that was a pretty tough, tough fan to be. Uh, well, well, he grew up in a in a Chicago Bears fan, and um, you know, my mom uh, did a lot in the in the nonprofit space. So um, the art stuff, uh, I don't know where that spark came from. Did your dad uh, see the Cubs win the series? He sadly passed away the the year uh, before they won, and so you know, we just sort of said uh, it took him, uh, you know, going to a higher place to. Finally, finally get him uh, to win the series. Well, yeah, he was smiling down on them, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right, so you're like a skateboard punk. You're you're uh, probably listening to punk rock. Uh, but then it also sounds like the Midwest is known for practicality. So you're sort of like, okay, I can I can channel this um, love of of art and drawing into something that's a little more structural, like um, like architecture. 
But then did, was there even a more like, did, what was the change from the architecture path to finance? Because we'll get into this in a minute, but I mean, my God, you were at Goldman Sachs, you were at Fortress, you were at Moore Capital. I mean, these are heavy hitters if, if listeners don't know. Um, of course, they know about Goldman, but Fortress and Moore Capital are a little bit more behind the scenes. But if you know um, Wall Street, those are power hitters. Um, was it sort of like, just tell me like what, what happened to the architecture? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it was pretty, pretty simple in a lot of ways. Um, I had a pretty humble background. I paid my own way through college. I worked, you know, kind of five or six jobs, uh, and graduated with a ton of student debt. Um, I worked as an architect while I was still in school. And, and so, you know, spending my summers and, and part of the year during the school year working in an architecture firm, you know, you look around and you, you see the, you know, the guy or the girl in the corner office. And, you know, my question is, okay, what do I have to do to become that person? And, you know, what I realized was I was a reasonably talented designer, uh, but I didn't know anything about running a business. And, you know, that wasn't what my focus had been. And, you know, at the end of the day, architecture, like, you know, most other uh, disciplines that are non-academic, you know, are, 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 are businesses. And so, I said, okay, I need to learn about business and how do I, how do I do that in a really focused way? And I had some fraternity brothers who um, had interned on Wall Street and graduated and worked on Wall Street, um, felt to me like that was a good opportunity to go live in New York City, uh, work as a Wall Street analyst for a couple of years, learn about business kind of in the crucible of capitalism, if you will. And you know, make some money and pay down some student loans. And so my, my intention had been to, you know, go work for a couple of years and then go back and get my master's. And, you know, the story turned out a little differently because when I, when I landed there, I really found that, that environment, the dynamism, uh, the competitive nature of, uh, you know, working in global markets, just super, super thrilling. And so, um, you know, still waiting to go back and get my, my master's in architecture one of these years. Yeah. Well, there's time. Um, yeah, my wife was a landscape architect and, uh, she, you know, it's like you said, it's, it's tough unless you're, you know, the, unless you've got the name on, on the wall, basically, if you're George Hardgraves or, you know, you're somebody like that, um, to, uh, really kind of pay the bills. Um, so, um, l let's get into just like some, cause I, I, you know, I, as listeners know, I love people who come from finance and then jump into Web3. Um, and so uh, you were at Goldman Sachs. Uh, is that sort of where you started? Uh, you know, did you come out of the internship there? And, and you were um, eventually you were in the fixed income currency and commodities group, which is a powerhouse at the bank. Um, they make a shit ton of money for people who don't know. Um, but what, what was that like? And, and was that sort of alluding to what you were just saying when you, you kind of got the the competitiveness of it and, and the fast pace and, and just the sort of, um, cause it is a rush for sure. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, my, my wall street career has always been a, a little unusual or maybe my whole career has been a little unusual. And, I, you know, part of that is, you know, being someone who's interested in the arts and, 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 you know, ends up on wall street. And so I never, sort of saw myself on the, I guess, the traditional path of, you know, hey, my dream in life is to be a investment banker or be a commodities trader. Um, I started out in a, in a business that would kind of had one foot in both worlds, um, group called Debt Capital Markets. And so I sat on a trading floor and was kind of part of that energy of the global markets, but I worked directly with companies, uh, with CFOs and things like that. And so um, a big part of that job was, you know, helping solve problems. Uh, and so, you know, I kind of equated it to being an architect, you know, when you're an architect, you have constraints, it might be the, you know, the plot of land, the, the, the budget, the building materials, et cetera. And you've got to use those constraints to create something, you know, uh, that, that meets your client's needs. Financial services is kind of the same thing in a lot of ways, you know, you're, you're solving financial problems for individuals or companies, your, your constraints are, are just different. Their, their capital, their risk, their uh, securities laws and things like that. And so that was kind of the mentality I brought to the business. And what that meant is I, I actually ended up uh, creating a bunch of new financial products um, and sort of being in the middle of 
uh, market transitions um, from voice broking to electronic trading and, you know, mm-hmm. being one of the, one of the, the individuals that kind of helped to create um, some of the big electronic trading businesses like TradeWeb, um, uh, stranded cost securitization and uh, catastrophic risk reinsurance in the capital markets. Those were, you know, new financial products that I was involved in helping to create. And so um, that was really kind of what kept me interested in, and kept me going was this idea of sort of building, um, building new products, building new businesses within, you know, the, the construct of a, of a larger business. Yeah. That's fascinating. I didn't know you had a, a link to trade web, um, which, um, I used to cover quite often, uh, for Bloomberg. <clears throat> um, and then, so th- your next stop was at Fortress and it's kind of a funny title you had, um, cause you were, you went through the financial crisis there. So you were the chief operating officer of liquid markets, um, which <laughs> in the financial crisis, that was the problem. There were no liquid markets. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, things were a lot less liquid then. <laughs> yeah. Right. Everything froze. Um, what was that like, uh, you know, from the inside there at, at a huge investment manager like Fortress? And did you have a sense that it was coming? Like, what, what was the, um, was it like a surprise when it happened? Or did you kind of be like, oh, I, I think I kind of saw this, um, you know, coming a, a little bit here? Well, I mean, listen, I, I, I wish I could say that I, that I saw it coming. I mean, it, at the time, you know, in, in 2008, you know, there were a number of things that were, you know, sort of warning bells going into, um, you know, the Lehman bankruptcy. But, you know, I think even before then, if I kind of rewind and, you know, I, what we would say is, you know, the hundred year storm in finance comes every three or four years. And so, you know, whether it was the Latin American debt crisis, uh, it, whether it was uh, the Russian debt crisis and LTCM, whether it was the, you know, the sort of flash crash, et cetera. Um, there are these kind of discontinuous moments in markets um, that, uh, you know, can have either a, a short term effect that wash people out or can, you know, be much more structural. And so obviously, um, you know, the, the, uh, there's a lot of documentation in history around, you know, what led up to the, to the Lehman crisis. I guess w- what I would say being sort of inside uh, our business and, and the liquid markets business was a big global macro business. My, my partner, Mike Novogratz, um, you know, founded that, that fund. And I, I kind of helped, uh, you know, build and, and manage that business. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time getting ready for something like Lehman Brothers um, and, you know, adjusting your risk and, um, you know, thinking about your counterparties and preparing, but I don't think anybody, uh, certainly, you know, uh, it, w- whether it was on the banking side or in the hedge fund side, really believed that, um, you know, a major U.S. investment bank was, was going to go bankrupt. And so it, it certainly sent, you know, tons of shockwaves through the system and, um, you know, was <laughs> made our lives very challenging uh, for, for a number of months, um, you know, but leading up to and then certainly after. Yeah. And I remember, uh, yeah, after Lehman, you know, there were a couple other banks right in line to go down with them. And that's, I think, when the Fed stepped in and started buying everything they could on the street. Um, that was some scary times. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it was, you know, it's hard to go home and, uh, talk to your, you know, wife or friends, uh, and, you know, really feel like the, the world was about to end when you, when you sort of saw what was happening and what, what, what potentially could happen. Um, because you know, the, the, the perspective of someone who wasn't in the business every day, just, you know, just, they didn't think about it the same way. And at yeah. the time I happened to be, um, on the executive committee of the, of the MFA and the managed funds association. And so we, we were down in DC about a week after, uh, Lehman went, went bankrupt meeting with Hank Paulson, who was the, the treasury secretary at the time. And, um, you know, I just will remember very distinctly, uh, you know, uh, Hank and, and the other, um, folks in treasury were very interested in, you know, what we were seeing in the markets. Um, but also very interested in what our ideas were, uh, you know, because no one had the playbook and that was, <laughs> that was yeah. maybe the scariest moment, but like there, there was no one who was going to come in and fix this, you know, it, we, we all had to figure it out together. Yeah. And, and the part that I probably know the best here is the over the counter derivatives market, which, you know, was linking all of these banks and you guys and, and the, on the buy side and, and nobody had a clue about where the risk was because there was no way like at that time 
these over-the-counter swaps contracts weren't um, managed in any way. Um, so that was, I think, what really got a lot of people's attention was that, you know, yeah, you let Lehman go, but if you let, I don't know, Goldman or, you know, Bank of America go down, that's going to drag down a bunch of other folks with it. And that's when yeah. I think people got really scared. Yeah, um, and it's interesting, right? I mean, just fast forward, or rewind rather, uh, to last year or fast forward from then to last year, given what happened with, you know, three euros capital, given what happened mm -hmm. with FTX, yeah. you know, some of those, you know, same contagion issues, um, you know, hit the crypto markets full on. And, and so, you know, regardless of, um, you know, what, what happens and, you know, what you would hope would be lessons learned, um, you know, history does, does unfortunately repeat itself in, in certain ways. It does, but I love that the sort of decentralized part of the of the ecosystem didn't really get affected at all. Uh, I thought that 100%. was, uh, that I mean, was, it, a was great, a, it was a great case yeah. for, for where things should be going in, in yeah. DeFi. Yeah, that's why I've been very happy to see uh, the summer called On Chain Summer because I think we need a lot more of that. Um, so you mentioned Mike Novogratz. So I was going to ask about him because uh, his is it his brother or his son Matthew who's who's working with you at Candy. His brothers, his brother, Matt is, is my co-founder of Candy. Okay. And then, um, so knowing Mike, uh, who was roommates in college with Joe Lubin, who's an Ethereum co-founder, uh, and, uh, old wall street guy, did you ever cross paths with Joe back in the day? You know, I didn't cross paths with Joe, um, you know, back in my Wall Street days. Uh, I, I, knew, I knew of Joe when Mike and I were, were partners at Fortress. Mike actually was early in the crypto space, uh, even when he was still at Fortress and, and helped to, uh, to seed um, one, of the, one of the early funds in the space, Pantera. Uh, Dan Moorhead was, uh, was someone that we knew well from the macro world. Um, and so, you know, through Mike's relationship with Joe, uh, and, you know, kind of Dan's thesis around, you know, what, what crypto, what role cryptocurrencies were going to play and, you know, what, what the future of blockchain was, um, those were some of the contributing factors. And Mike's one of the best, you know, kind of macro thinkers and, and macro traders out there. And so, you know, he very much, uh, you know, saw the trend, uh, and, and believed in, the future of, um, you know, internet money, decentralized ownership, and ultimately, you know, what the next phase of either the world of finance or the world of the internet internet was going to be. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I, I, obviously, you can't speak for him, but it sounds like he saw it more than just an asset class, a new asset class. He saw it as, as something more far-reaching than that. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, like any, uh, like any great macro trader, uh, you know, what you're trying to do is you're, you're, you're trying to look at, uh, trends across markets, across economies, across societies and sort of see where things are going. Um, you know, you're always macro traders are always looking for some new investable asset, but they also, um, if it's something new, you know, you, you have to understand, you know, what you think the future is, why, uh, you know, why is uh, Bitcoin worth what Bitcoin is worth? And what's the power in Satoshi's white paper? Why is it important? Not just, not just because you now have a digital uh, asset that you can invest in, but what does it actually mean for the future of finance? Um, what is that going to mean for big institutional investors like a BlackRock or a Fidelity to get interested in the space and then ultimately individuals? And so I think that narrative right at the end of the day um, macro investors uh, are storytellers, right? They, they're interpreting stories, they're telling stories, and they're making bets around those stories. Um, and I think that's a you know kind of at the core of of how uh, how traders like Mike get excited about something new. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, it also made me smile when I saw that you were a senior advisor to Elephant. Um, because, uh, if that, that's, uh, it was a bond trading platform created by, uh, a guy named Cactus Razzi, uh, who I, I know, and I, I wrote some profiles to him over the years, uh, just a really fascinating guy. And then it kind of clicked when you said TradeWeb. So did you, did you get to know Cactus, uh, through TradeWeb? Yeah. So full disclosure, Cactus, uh, is one of my best friends. Um, okay. we, uh, we go way back, um, work together at Goldman, um, and, 
you know, as he was setting up, uh, as he was kind of coming out of trade weapons and setting up elephant, spent a lot of time with him, uh, you know, kind of thinking through what that odd lot business looked like and, um, you know, what a platform like that, uh, could, could look like as well. And so incredibly, incredibly talented individual and, uh, um, you know, super happy to have been on the journey with him as well. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a fascinating guy and he's probably got the best name in finance that I've ever heard. Cactus Razzi. <laughs> I mean, I don't, he don't, for, see, don't forget that. I'm going to see him on Saturday. So I'll tell him, tell me you said hi. Yeah, please do. Please do. Um, all right. So we're getting closer to when you jump into Web3. So you um, started uh, a, a kind of a, an investment and advisory firm called uh, Parametric, right, in early January 20, 2017. And you started looking at blockchain projects, among other things. Was was that like your first foray into this? Or what, what was the, was there a moment where you just decided that I, I'm going to go into this full time now? Was there an event or a project or something that, that sort of pulled you in? Yeah, I had actually gotten involved a bit earlier than that back in, in sort of 2013, 2014. Um, a couple of other folks, uh, as I mentioned, you know, Mike Novogratz had, had started to invest uh, while he was at Fortress and then ultimately, you know, uh, left to form Galaxy Digital. Um some of my former MIT colleagues um, had been experimenting in the space, uh, particularly around Bitcoin, had run some experiments up at MIT where they had given uh, incoming freshmen $100 worth of Bitcoin um, just to see what they would do with it. You know, would they buy a pizza? Would they uh, immediately sell it? Would they hold on to it, et cetera? And so, I, I, you know, I... Unfortunately, much to my chagrin, didn't 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 do as much research as the, at, at the time as I probably should have. But it was always sort of in my head around, um, you know, what was this going to mean for finance? What was this going to mean for uh, transaction processing? Um, you know, there uh, there were some interesting businesses from former uh, Wall Street folks that were getting set up to kind of explore. You know, what does it mean to put transactions on chain in the back office? What does it mean to put a major market exchange on chain? And, um, and then in 2017, after I, after I retired from more, I, I really started to narrow my focus. Um, you know, having sort of seen the, you know, the kind of the, the run up, um, the 2016, 2017, uh, run up. And then obviously the, you know, the, the, the subsequent winter, um, it felt like uh, that was a, a reset and an opportunity to, to kind of get back involved and, and help to decide, help to either participate in or, or potentially be involved in what the next phase of the space was going to be. And so um, I didn't I didn't end up uh, doing that full time. I uh, was still sort of involved in private investments both as an investor and advisor and um, but then ultimately led to uh, 2020 uh, starting Candy Digital. And was it like your kind of art interest um, from, you know, your, your whole life that, that the NFT area was where you wanted to, to, to go? And is that is that sort of what directed you to that part? Because, you, you know, there's a lot of different um, places in, in crypto to, to go. But yeah, I think it's I think it's what got me the most excited because, you know, having been a, you know, 27 uh, year finance guy, like I sort of felt like I'd, I'd done enough in that space. And even though the, the technology was was super interesting and compelling, there were a lot of people in DeFi. There were a lot of people, you know, kind of looking at TradFi opportunities and how to bring them on chain. And so I, I was interested in NFTs because they sort of brought the, the finance, the tech and the, and the art together. Um, and so that felt like something that, you know, I, I, I was interested in diving in on and, and seeing, you know, what the, what the business opportunity was there. And so take me through that because obviously there was a very, uh, there must've been a wild ride. Um, at the beginning there was, you know, so much buzz and, and lots of speculation and froth in the market. Um, you had huge brands coming in, like we've mentioned, like Major League Baseball and NASCAR, uh, a lot the WWE. And then things have, you know, obviously the, the market's reset. Like you said, we're in, we're in another pretty bad crypto winter right now. Um, what have you, like, how do you talk about that cycle and, and where you think things are headed now? Yeah, it was, it was a totally crazy time. Um, 
you know, we were, when we set the business up, you know, the first place we looked is, you know, we, we sort of looked at art, we looked at music, things that I'm personally passionate about, uh, as well as sports and entertainment, but, um, looking at those and, and realizing that it was harder to sort of scale those communities and harder to, you know, potentially, you know, build, uh, build a platform business. And so really thinking about, uh, where did those communities exist at scale, um, sports fans, uh, entertainment fans, you know, movies, shows, et cetera. And so that, that's where we decided to start the business. When we set it up, we set it up as a joint venture um, between Galaxy Digital and Fanatics. Um, so, you know, if we're going to start a business in sports, um, you know, Fanatics is, is one of the largest players out there, obviously, on the e-commerce side. And so that's how we that's how we kind of kicked the business off. And that was um, you know really beneficial to Candy in terms of, you know, getting those introductions to the leagues, um, you know, having those conversations. And in the beginning of 2021, you know, I, I like to say, unless you were in the crypto space, you know, nobody really knew how to spell NFT, right? It, it just wasn't something that was on people's agenda or, or part of the conversation. And so mm-hmm. we spent a lot of time in the beginning of the year educating the leagues and, and teams uh, and athletes in, in, in a lot of instances, like what, you know, what blockchain was, uh, what cryptocurrencies were, what NFTs were, why they were interesting, um, you know, what we saw the opportunity was not not just to you know, sell a digital product, but really engage with fans uh, in a new way. Um, and whether that's through a collectible, whether it's through a digital ticket, whether it's through on-chain loyalty. And so, you know, I think we did a we, we did a pretty good job, um, you know, getting out there and, and kind of establishing ourselves as, you know, the institutional grade partner for a lot of these, these brands, um, you know, who were interested in the space. But as you know, there was a ton of froth, a ton of, you know, folks who sort of showed up and put an NFT hat on and, and said, Hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm in business now. And so there was a lot of crap, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 uh, got pushed into the marketplace. A lot of, a lot of brands and athletes, you know, sort of regret, uh, not doing their diligence, just sort of jumping in, you know, maybe not exactly with the right, uh, products or the, or the right partners. And, you know, what we, what we said at the time was despite all the, you know, all the crazy activity and you know, 98% of the NFTs were being minted, you know, probably weren't going to be worth anything in, in, in a few years time. Um, but that ultimately, you know, the, the, the underlying tech, the relationship with the customer and the communities that are developed are, are the things that are going to be longstanding and, and really power through the, through the next phase. And so that's always kind of been our thesis. And, you know, listen, whether we were smart or lucky, who, who knows, we, you know, we, we managed our business in a way where we, we didn't make huge commitments to partners that, you know, haven't unfortunately put a, put a number of other players out of business. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we've always had a long-term view of what this opportunity is. Um, you know, our, our, our long-term view hasn't changed. It's certainly a more challenging environment to operate in, but we're really fortunate to have great partners like Major League Baseball, great partners like uh, NASCAR, Getty Images. Um, with our you know, recent Palm merger now, you know, we bring Warner Brothers and, and DC Comics uh, on board as well. And so, um, you know, we, we feel pretty good about where we're at. I can understand. Um, I think the baseball card analogy is really helpful here, right? Because I would, I would imagine Major League Baseball kind of it was probably not that hard to sell them on this idea because it's kind of a digital version of that that's backed by a blockchain. Um, and so I understand that, but um, I'm curious, one thing that I don't quite understand and I'm hoping you could help me is if I'm like, I noticed some of the things you're selling on your platform are like moments in baseball history, like like a walk-off home run or or other things like great plays. And you can have a video clip that's your NFT. And then obviously it's, it's, you know, secured by the Palm network and the blockchain. Um, but does it complicate things when there's that video of something? Cause what if I had that on VHS and I know this might be a stupid analogy and I apologize if it is, but I understand more like when it's, um, a digital artwork. Um, but when there's like 
something in the middle of it that like somebody else's, you know, TV broadcast that's owned by, you know, ABC, let's say, or whatever, CBS, does that complicate things? Or, or how do you think about that sort of aspect of the sports memorabilia that you guys are digitizing uh, at Candy? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's a it's a great question, right? The way that we think about it is um, you just go back to kind of the baseball card idea, right? Um, the, the traditional piece of cardboard is is trading card 1.0, right? It has some imagery on the front. It has some stats or some text on the back. Um, you know, there's a obviously multi-billion dollar market around uh, the scarcity and rarity of those, you know, trading cards and, um, you know, huge conventions and swap meets and auctions and things like that. When, when we think about sort of trading card 2.0, you know, that's the digital picture of that, right? It's the digital representation of that physical asset could be a, a authentication of it could be a digital twin, um, but it has the same type of information. What, what we create or what we really are, are working to continue to, to create is what we think of as sort of trading card 3.0. So it's the same idea of, um, a, a collectible asset that represents a player or a team, um, but isn't just a static image, brings video into it, brings motion graphics, brings sound, um, and brings dynamic statistics. And so, you know, as that player plays, his statistics, his, his game statistics update in real time. As someone collects those assets, um, the assets themselves can change, their collection can change. And so, it adds a different level of, of sort of engagement, not just from the multimedia aspect, but but also because you can layer data on top, on top of it, it and, and it can change over time. When you think about something that's like a standalone moment, um, you know, I, I guess the analogy I would use, yes, of course, if it's a if it's a clip of um, Cal Ripken, you know, getting a home a, a historic home run, you can go to the internet and you can download that clip and, and save it on your computer. You know, the, the, that clip that we sell is a unique and limited edition clip that's been authenticated by Major League Baseball. And so it, it is an asset that is ownable and tradable and has uh, provenance and, and a history that, you know, that is ultimately on chain. And so over time, um, you know, if, if that particular moment, uh, ownership of that moment um, becomes, you know, more important and more valuable either emotionally or, or economically, you know, that VHS clip, um, you know, that that's just a, a piece of content, um, having that digital asset that is connected to a token on chain confers that ownership. And so, you know, you can, anyone can go to the internet and download a picture of the Mona Lisa, put it on their computer, um, but you're not going to sell that picture of the Mona Lisa, Right. Um, there's only one Mona Lisa. And so um, there are a lot of kind of real world analogies that, that transfer over into into digital where facsimiles, copies, uh, you know, uh, photographs, AI generated uh, items. Um, we're continue to have that debate. The magic of of, you know, NFTs and tokenization is that it's unique and verifiable because it's associated with that blockchain based asset. Yeah, and, and the provenance, I think, part makes sense to me where Major League Baseball is sanctioning this, right? It's uh, mm -hmm. So that gives it a little bit more weight, maybe. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why we really focus on working with licensed partners because we know that that authenticity is important, right? Mm -hmm. Collectors and fans care about something that's authentic. I mean, there's, there's tons of content, great content out there that could generate it that isn't officially licensed or authenticated, but... Um, real collectors want to know um, that, you know, that this is official and, and that, you know, base, Major League Baseball or Netflix or, or DC Comics, you know, put, puts its weight behind it. Yeah. Um, it's funny, you mentioned Dan Moorhead at Pantera. I was just reading their blockchain letter this morning and they had a little section on uh, esports and they, they were making the uh, same sort of kind of analogy that, or, or same point we're sort of making where, you know, a Michael Jordan jersey, you can buy one of those for $100, but, you know, a Michael Jordan jersey that he wore in the finals, you know, in the NBA, uh, you know, just sold for something like $10.8 million, right? Because mm -hmm. there's, there's like the rarity of that uh, and, the, and the authenticity of that makes it, you know, so much more valuable. And the, their point was that, 
in the um, kind of metaverse world, like skins and things like that, that, that uh, players uh, might start wearing, you know, it's the same sort of thing. And so it put me in mind, I knew I was going to be talking to you. And I wondered if, are you guys looking at that as well? Like at skins and at things that are like digital, digital wearables for like sports uh, and, and does that fit into the memorabilia part or is that a, do you see that as a separate category from what you guys are doing at Candy? Yeah, no, it, we, we, um, we're definitely interested in it. Uh, we've done a couple of projects with uh, digital apparel and digital wearables. And so uh, earlier this year, we released our, our candy jerseys uh, with Major League Baseball. And so um, these are uh, you know, 3D asset jerseys for each of the teams. Ultimately, you know, we do see, you know, one of the, as I say, one of the interesting things about the technology is, let's say that you end up with a Mike Trout uh, digital jersey and um, ultimately, because it's a digital asset, it's a 3D asset, right? You can look at it in an AR viewer, and so you can actually see it in, in real space. Um, that asset might be something that can be ultimately be composable with an avatar, whether that's in the candy ecosystem or in um, some game. And because it's tied back to kind of a data infrastructure, you know, if Mike Trout plays a game... Uh, and you know, slides into home. Uh, that jersey might get dirty, right? It, mm. it might it might change to actually reflect uh, you know Mike's performance on the field. And so, those are all different ideas that we're thinking about. Um, we have done, and that's that was a jersey that you know we created with Major League Baseball. The other version of that is uh, one of the projects we did with Netflix, where we actually went to the Netflix, uh, the Stranger Things set, rather and uh, digitally scanned uh, the props from the show. Hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, the roller skates, Eleven's dress, uh, you know, the, the nail-studded bat, things that if you're a fan of Stranger Things, you know, these are kind of important icons uh, that, are, that are part of the, the Stranger Things pantheon. And the level of detail uh, that you can capture in that 3D scan you can't get any closer other than holding the real thing. And so, you know, we sold those as, as digital assets and, and those are, you know, kind of real digital objects that are unique and rare and, and limited. And so, you know, today you can see it on your computer, you can see it on your phone, you can see it in an AR viewer in the future uh, as technology, you know, evolves, you may be able to use that in a metaverse or you frankly may be able to, you know, display that holographically, you know, on your, on your shelf. Hmm. Um, so we try to think about where ultimately this tech is going uh, and AR and VR we're really excited about. Um, but, you know, we live in the here and now. And so we, we try to future proof what we do and, and make it interesting and compelling as, as we can today. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, but yeah, and it always hasn't been easy. I mean, you guys, there's a divestment. Uh, Fanatics kind of left uh, as the market turned down. Um, had some layoffs. And, and you know, it's it's a tough winter uh, right now. Um, we at Decentral are feeling that ourselves. You know, we're trying to keep our money, uh, you know, conservative and trying to make it through to the other side. Where do you think we are on that cycle? Uh, you've been through a, a couple of, or at least one winter here. And do you see something that's might, you know, bring the market out of the doldrums? Kind of like, I think, you know, DeFi summer back in 2020 kind of pulled things out of the winter that started in 2018. And then the, the, the NFT stuff definitely helped as well. Is and do you think we're going to get pulled out by something like that where there's a new application uh, for blockchain or, or what, what do you see as maybe uh, the turning point? Yeah, I think one of the things that, that would be the most helpful is just more regulatory certainty, mm. right? Um, you know, aside from <clears throat> just the collapse in, in asset prices and, you know, la lack of activity, um, you know, we actually see a lot of interest and increased interest from brands, um, you know, who kind of dipped their toe in the water or maybe jumped in, uh, in, in 21 and 22, but now are taking a step back and saying, okay, this isn't just a way for us to try to sell something and make money or, 
you know, look cool because we have an NFT strategy, but we understand like the technology is not going away. Um, the market may de- be depressed, but what does it actually mean for the future of our customer relationship as, as more and more things become digital? And so that from our perspective is, is really encouraging. Um, now, in order to get there, um, those brands have to, you know, kind of rethink their expectations around what it means to enter the space, um, the revenue model around how those businesses or those products get built need to, you know, change and evolve. And it becomes less about, uh, you know, selling a digital item for a million dollars and more about how do we, how do we engage with our fans and our consumers in a way where we're collecting zero party data and establishing a digital relationship in one that doesn't exist today through advertising or through, um, you know, our, our, our social connections. And so that part's really encouraging. Um, I think one of the things that is just an overhang on the whole industry is this regulatory uncertainty, right? The, you know, the, the United States and, uh, the SEC has not done uh, any of us any favors in, in terms of kind of helping to put that path forward. And so that has certainly kept some large brands and some large players from being you know, more aggressive uh, in the space. So I, I, there isn't one thing in particular that, you know, that we're looking at and saying, well, you know, if, if that just if that switch gets flipped, you know, we're, we're sort of off to the races again. I, I don't mm-hmm. think that's necessarily kind of what the next phase is going to be. But what I do think is, um, you know, we're, we're, we're actually not that far uh, into this, this sort of latest uh, winter. Um, there are, you know, a number of, of folks who have exited the business. There's less noise. That's a good thing. Um, and there are a smaller number of folks who are continuing to kind of build for the long term. And I think as long as we keep building and stay focused on, you know, what we're all trying to solve, which is, you know, ease of use, uh, you know, lack of lack of fraud, safety and security, regular, you know, regulatory and, and, and sort of legal clarity and certainty and ultimately kind of composability uh and uh, and a compelling use case for for consumers like we'll get there um and it, and it might turn on a dime again like it, like it did in 21 um or it might just continue, it might just be a slow build yeah i'm talking to folks every week here who are um moving their businesses offshore or not offering services to the u.s because of that regulatory uncertainty so it is definitely happening and I, I agree with you. I think it's a shame. Um, and then I think on the NFT side, I think it, I think brands have figured out that it's much smarter to give away NFTs and then create experiences for the the, the either the you know the consumer or the fan that, that holds that NFT. So you might get special access at a concert or or a, a, you know at a, a auditorium or you know a stadium for a game, or you get you know a special access to a new line of clothing or something. So I think that that's something we've been covering here. And I I feel like that's sort of been evolving almost before our eyes. And I I think that's really interesting, especially in the music space where I think musicians are figuring out that this is a really great way to go directly to their fans and sort of like not need the record company. And I think there's a huge battle going on there because, you know, the, the record companies have always had so much control over that sort of the part of the business, um, and there's so much money at stake. So that's something that I'm watching really inter- uh, really closely. Um, so, okay, just one last thing real quick. Um, I saw that you were involved with the skate park project, and now I know that you're a former skate punk. Um, does that have anything to do with Jeff Ament at uh, Pearl Jam? He's the bass player, and, and he's been building skate parks uh, around the country. You know, he... Um I, I think he has done some work with Tony in the, in the skate park, park project. This is really Tony Hawk, the Tony Hawk foundation. Um, and, you know, kind of one of Tony's efforts to help community, help individuals, kids, uh, communities to build skate parks, um, and change the narrative right around, uh, you know, what skateboarding is for, for a lot of folks. Um, you Do know, you remember the when we were kids, it was skateboarding is not a crime. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was that was next to the skate and destroy sticker, right? Yeah. Um, and so um, I, I, I I was involved uh, a little bit more directly in, a number of years ago. Um, a little less so since I'm you know building a startup company, but yeah. still really passionate about the mission. Okay, just wanted to check in on that because I love Pearl Jam. I think what he's doing is great. Um, well, Scott, thank you so much for all your time and sharing your, your background and, and your history with, uh, with me. Let folks know how they can learn more about Candy Digital and about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, www.candy.com uh, is, is kind of where it's all at. Um, you can check out all of our various partners. Um, as you mentioned earlier, you know, we recently merged with uh, Pullman FT Studio. We're going to be uh, bringing uh, a poem uh, relationships uh, uh, over to Candy as well, relatively shortly. Um, and then uh, follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, and uh, and certainly sign up for our Discord. Uh, love to see you. Yeah. Is there any um, any project coming up that you're particularly excited about? You know, we're we're really uh, kind of knee deep in uh, the the current. MLB season. And, um, and so we've got uh, a bunch of releases coming up around kind of our core products leading up to the playoffs. And then uh, with our partners at DC, uh, getting ready to um, kind of announce some of the next phases of the bat cowl project, which has been, uh, you know, a really successful project for folks um, who are helping not only to kind of connect with the storyline, but also help create the storyline. So I'm really excited about both of those. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Um, if you could please do anything you can to, to get the Dodgers to win another World Series, uh, I would really appreciate it because I'm not sure how many more seasons I can take where they get to the playoffs and then just don't, don't do anything. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, Scott, thanks again, man. It was really great talking to you and best of luck with Candy Digital. Likewise, really appreciate it, Matt. Have a great day. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Himes. 